In September 2017, Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. Hurricane Maria, a powerful Category 4 storm, is now barreling towards Puerto, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is starting to feel the effects of Hurricane Maria. It is a monster storm, and it is set to make landfall this morning. This is a live Maria. look right the now. The winds and the rain have been incredibly strong. At this point, you can really only see a block in either direction. Debris already covering the streets here. The entire island in the dark after the power grid was completely knocked out. We're looking at four to six months without electricity. Six months later, residents are still struggling with basic needs. Hurricane Maria continues to take a mental and emotional toll. The feelings come back of pain, of desperation, of hopelessness, of a trauma when they hear the wind uh, again outside, a strong wind or a storm. Um, all of that circulates around uh, with tremendous anxiety and stress. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, providing an emotional balm after the trauma of Hurricane Maria. Later in the show, there's a growing epidemic of an infection called C. diff, and it's deadly. What happened was that it picked up a brand new toxin or poison that activates the immune system in a, in a very bad way to cause exuberant inflammation. So it's the body's own immune response that is so deadly against this epidemic strain. But first, Counselors Without Borders sends mental health professionals into communities dealing with major disasters. One of the founders, Fred Bemack, recently traveled to Puerto Rico with his counseling graduate student, Jean Agosto. Fred is a professor at George Mason University, and he received a 2018 Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Fred, you and Jean recently spent a week in Puerto Rico with others. What is the situation there now six months after Hurricane Maria ruined everything? We were there for the six-month anniversary and one would expect after six months conditions to be uh, much better than they were. We actually, as we flew into San Juan, there were blue tarps all over the city you'd see from the plane. The, there are still just people getting electricity. The roofs hadn't been fixed. So the ongoing problems, the trauma, the lack of resources, the food, the safety, uh, people are still afraid of the wind. So it's a very, very fragile situation. Jean, when you were still flying and looking down and beginning to see up close, what was your reaction, having grown up there and your whole family's back there? Yeah, it was definitely very difficult. Um, and every time I fly back from the U.S. back home, um, I look through the window and I admire the buildings that I know. Hey, I used to hang out over there or this. I know where this place is and seeing that but now covered in blue tarps or completely demolished was, was definitely not easy. When, when things stabilize and the hurricane ends, people start to get their feet on the ground and those feelings can start to manifest much more strongly. As people start to see the world and say, wow, there's hope or there's not too much hope. In Puerto Rico, uh, for many people, they went the avenue of, I, I don't see the hope. I don't see the future for me. So when we go into a home and see a couple in their 50s sleeping on the floor, on a concrete floor, because there's no bedding, their house was destroyed. This is the only place they can stay. The feelings come back of pain, of desperation, of hopelessness, of a trauma when they hear the wind uh, again outside, a strong wind or a storm. Um, all of that circulates around uh, with tremendous anxiety and stress. How, how do you support people through counseling? Certainly you must not say, hi, I'm a therapist here to help. Do you need to talk? <laughs> In fact, with Counselors Without Borders, we never say, hi, we're here to help you with your mental health. <laughs> nobody will come. Nobody will talk with you. The stigma is too great. Oh, I, I'm not crazy. <laughs> and so I don't need mental health help. What we do 
And what has been very successful in Puerto Rico and all over the world and in the United States is we talk about stress. We talk about difficulty after the hurricane. And people, everyone's stressed. And so people say, oh, I have stress. Let me talk about it. And so we reframe what we're talking about so the healing can happen in a very open way. When we talk about mental health, nobody's coming. Once you made people aware that you were there to help them with the stress, did they come? Yes. (laughs) And as happens in other places, the numbers grow. So when people hear that, oh, it was helpful talking about my stress, other, the word gets out. Do you think Puerto Rico was a different experience for people? Because they're, they're part of us and maybe have the added stress of thinking, you abandoned us. Sarah, I think you are absolutely correct. Hurricanes are hurricanes are hurricanes. They're painful, they're scary, they're difficult, they're stress-inducing. Puerto Rico said, okay, we have a hope. We have a future. We have the United States. We're a territory, and the United States will help us out. As that became evident that there were limits to the help and that the help fell far short of the needs, That's an added dimension that I haven't seen anywhere else in the world, except internally in the United States. Uh, For example, uh, during Hurricane Katrina, it's like hanging a lifeline in front of someone and then taking it away. What about your own family, Jean? Are they doing relatively better than many in more remote areas? Um, I would say so. We consider ourselves one of the lucky ones. We didn't lose a house. Uh, but living during the, the power outage was definitely very straining on them. And I remember uh, my brother, who's 18, he would have to wake up at 3 in the morning to leave the house um, to go to the gas station where they would get gas for the power generator because it was the only way to power the refrigerator and some basic fans. So granted, the gas station wouldn't open until like 7. But in order for him to get a spot in line close enough that he would get gas and ice, he would have to be there at 3 in the morning. Usually he wouldn't come back till 9, 10 a.m. Um, and then the daily routine worked from there. The power generator couldn't, obviously couldn't stay on at all times because that's costly. And um, so it would have to, they had to adapt a cycle. So they had a little bit of power in the morning. Then they would turn the, the generator off, spend the rest of the day with powerless, just playing cards or board games or whatever um, at the house. And then at night they would turn it on for a little bit more to, um, to see if they could catch a little bit of the news on the radio or something like that to see what was going on on the island. And then before bedtime, they would turn the generator back off in order to conserve. So I think on average, it was like a six hours that they had power out of each day. And that's, again, that's considered lucky compared to others that didn't have power at all and still have no power. He's 18. When you were 18, was that when you went off to college on the mainland? Yeah. Had you intended to go back? And will you return permanently now? I don't know what the future holds. Um, I would gladly, if the opportunity really comes up, I would gladly leave back home and go back home. Fred, how did you and your group offer relief from stress for people? What techniques did you have and what, what advice? One of, the, one of the things I found very important in disaster situations is to be culturally responsive. And in Puerto Rico, Uh, there's much more a sense of collectivism, of family, of community, of connection. So the support was geared towards how do we help people heal as a community, as a group, as a family. We would sit and have meetings where people would talk about what they were experiencing, talk about their pain, talk about their stress, not their mental health problems. And Um, And people would start to share in ways they'd never shared. Many people in those uh, group meetings would cry, actually, because they'd been holding back on those very deep-rooted feelings. We also would, in more severe circumstances where people were emotionally unable to come and join those kinds of uh, forums, we would go into homes and we would sit with people in homes and just have very profound talks about how it was going, how they were healing, how they might better heal. 
um, very powerful healing experiences. And do you find it has sort of lasting effect? Significantly so. I, I could give you an example. Uh, Jean and I, at one point, we broke up, our team broke up to go to as many homes as possible with more serious situations. And we sat with somebody who had very serious mental health problems, and the entire community was worried about this individual. Uh, he was 25 years old, uh, refusing to come out of the house, um, increasingly depressed, suicidal. And we sat with him, and eventually, instead of sitting and just talking, we, he agreed to come and walk down the street with us. And we started to engage him with neighbors. Neighbors came up and hugged him. I haven't seen you in months. Where have you been? And he re-engaged with the community. And the family and other people in the community started to tell us he's smiling more and talking more than we've seen in six months. And so those kinds of interventions that are not the classical, traditional, let me sit and provide mental health counseling, those kinds of interventions make significant impact. And our experience has been that always that it's long-term. Is it hard for the two of you and others in your group to not be able to wave a magic wand and actually fix the structural things that are so hard? That, that's definitely true. Um, it is definitely um, very difficult to not be able to just rewind time seven months ago when the island wasn't devastated and just have it continue to be that way. But it's also extremely rewarding to be able to go down there and, and to provide that space that they needed. It was just, oh, I just needed a voice that would hear me. So that is really extremely rewarding as well. You know, hurricane season is less than a month away. Right. How are people feeling about the next season? It must be hard to feel you have so little control. It's very hard, and people are shaky, they're nervous. We had one mother who shared with us, I don't know what to say to my daughter, my young five-year-old. Every time she hears the wind, she gets scared and starts crying. So we're working with circumstances and situations like that. Um, we can't take away the next hurricane season, but we can help people feel in the present that life is okay, they're managing together, and how will they better manage the anticipation of the next hurricane? Jean, was this the first Counselors Without Borders event that you had participated in? Yes. Do you want to do more? Oh, definitely. Before, I was struggling a lot with um, how, to, how to provide help in a way that's, that's real, not just to send a check that or send a case of water that which is important and helpful um but how do how do i create impact and change in a way that not only helps my me feel better about myself but also helps the people back home my family friends there were so many times where i just sat in front of the tv i'm just here sitting in my comfortable sofa while there's people down there suffering like really suffering and then some of that little feeling of hopelessness too it's like what can i do i'm just a small little person having that opportunity given to you and being able to take advantage of going down there and giving a little bit of you to those people is was something that was extremely rewarding. I assume that you don't need, Fred, more counselors without borders. You've got plenty. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wait, we're, we're packed right now. And, and the other part is, is we only go where we're invited when the services fall short. If other agencies and organizations are providing the services, I'm ecstatic. If someone says, we're really falling short, would you consider coming and helping us here? We're ready to go. Well, this is wonderful. Fred and Jean, thank you so much for sharing your insights and with good reason. Sarah, thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. Fred B. Mack is a professor at George Mason University and received a 2018 Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award administered by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Jean Agosto is a graduate student at George Mason University. Coming up next, a modern downside to some antibiotics. C. diff is the name they give a bacterial infection that usually strikes people 
After they've taken antibiotics for some other reason, like pneumonia in the hospital, it can cause severe diarrhea, and in some cases, death. Fortunately, doctors have ways of treating it. My next guest is Dr. William Petrie. He teaches at the University of Virginia Medical School and is chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health at UVA. He studies C. diff and how we can stop it. Bill, why has there been this recent increase in deaths from diarrhea? And this isn't just any diarrhea, right? That's right. It's an increase in deaths of diarrhea due to a bug called C. diff. C. diff is an infection that you get with antibiotics, actually, sort of paradoxically. So there's a new epidemic of C. diff. And this epidemic of C. diff is due to a new version or strain of this bacteria that is much more deadly. So it's been slowly increasing to the point now that about a third of C. diff infections are due to this much more deadly strain. C. diff has always, unfortunately, been a problem since I was a medical student, but it was never our number one problem with antibiotic-resistant infections. What we were taught is to think about C. diff in a patient that has diarrhea after they've received antibiotics. And then we were taught to treat it with a different antibiotic uh, called metronidazole. And do you think what happened is eventually it just became resistant and mutated? No, actually what happened was that it picked up a brand new toxin or poison that activates the immune system in a, in a very bad way to cause exuberant inflammation. And it's the inflammation that actually can damage and kill. So it's the body's own immune response that is so deadly against this epidemic strain. So what do we do now when somebody develops the deadly strain? It kills 30,000 a year, right? That's correct. And it kills patients even though it's not classically antibiotic resistant. And so it stays sensitive to the antibiotics, but this exuberant immune response to this epidemic strain is, is what is so deadly. And so what we have to do is, number one, try to prevent it. There is research going on on a vaccine that's not available yet. We're trying to like much more judiciously use antibiotics and to be sure that we're not using antibiotics, for example, to treat the common cold, that we're giving antibiotics when someone really needs them for pneumonia, urinary tract infections, because we realize every time we give an antibiotic, we're putting a patient at risk of C. diff. So if you have somebody that really has come down with the deadly strain, what are the, what's the recourse? So we treat with antibiotics, with different antibiotics than the ones that cause them to become susceptible. If the patient doesn't respond to antibiotics, we do what's called a fecal transplant. And what we're doing there is we're trying to repopulate the intestine with the good bacteria that prevented C. diff by transferring the stool from a healthy individual into a patient with C. diff. The fecal transplants are, are very effective, especially at preventing relapses. So about one out of every five patients with C. diff will relapse, and if you do a fecal transplant, that becomes almost none. But in the meantime, we are stuck with an increasingly deadly variety of C. diff that's affecting more people and killing more people each year. That, that's right, and I just came back from um, making rounds at the University of Virginia Hospital, and, and two of my patients that I rounded on this morning have C. diff. And so it's very motivating as a physician scientist to try to come up with better answers to preventing or treating this infection. You did a study recently that is just fascinating to me in terms of how scientists work together and build off each other's material. You had published the results of a mouse study that relates to what might be happening with C. diff. That's right. Uh, we published a study looking at how the immune system responds to C. diff, and can we change the way that that immune system responds to make it a protective response instead of something that causes damage. And we did this work in a mouse model of C. diff. And what we discovered was that a cell called an eosinophil is actually protective against C. diff. And you may have heard of eosinophils because they're the bad guys in allergy. They're the white blood cell that causes all the runny noses and the wheezing. And so it was really amazing to discover that in this disease, they're actually what protects our intestine from C. diff. So what you're thinking is that the mice that had allergies are less likely 
to contract the deadly C. diff? That's right. We haven't actually tested that, but that makes perfect sense that that would be the case. And so we looked to see what immune cells, what white blood cells are present at the site of infection. And what we realized is that a mouse that was dying from C. diff, we did not see eosinophils, whereas the mice that were protected from C. diff had abundant eosinophils. So we had an association then that if you have eosinophils, you're much more likely to heal from this infection. And then in a series of experiments, we actually showed by adding back eosinophils from a healthy mouse to a a mouse with C. diff, we could actually rescue that mouse. And one of the interesting things um, was that there was a colorectal surgeon in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, David Stewart, who read our article. And he thought, well, if this is true in mice, it must be true in humans. And all on his own, he looked at 1,000 patients admitted to the Hershey, Pennsylvania Medical Center with C. diff, and he looked for eosinophils in their bloodstream. And what he found was that if a patient did not have eosinophils, they were two and a half times more likely to die of C. difficile and almost five times more likely to require surgery for C. diff. And so he was able to take our mouse observation and show its relevance in humans. So interesting. You then built on that. Yes, I was really inspired by his work. And so we looked at 1,000 patients at the University of Virginia, and we found exactly the same thing. And so that really reassured me that it was a legitimate result, that we could replicate it in a completely different medical center, again with 1,000 patients. Does that mean we can take eosinophils and from one patient that has them and inject them into another and cure the deadly C. diff? That, that is theoretically possible. It's, there's probably easier ways to do things. I think immediately, though, I, I was just talking to my intern and resident in the hospital today with our patients with C. diff that we're caring for right now. We look to see, do they have eosinophils or not? If they don't, then they're at greater risk of a bad outcome. Long-term, the easy way to get the eosinophils to help fight C. diff is by finding the right bacteria in a probiotic that could be administered that would help to bring the eosinophils to the gut. Isn't it interesting that here's a characteristic of somebody with just really bothersome allergies who is protected in some way by the very thing that we thought had no use? It is, and it's one of the mysteries. You know, for everything you discover in science, you find there's five things you don't understand. And we don't understand how the eosinophils are doing this. And it's not the simple answer that we thought that they're killing C. diff because there's just as much C. diff in a mouse or a person who has eosinophils as one who doesn't. So we suspect that the eosinophils are somehow changing the immune response in a way that is healthy as as opposed to being deadly. But it's an open question right now. So this increase in deaths from diarrheal infections and C. diff in this deadly form, is that only in the United States? It's also true in in Europe. Um, Everywhere in higher-income countries, C. diff is a leading problem, especially in hospital-acquired infections. It's this um, terrible dilemma we have as physicians that by giving antibiotics, we're actually predisposing patients to C. diff. And the reason for that is because we've evolved with the bacteria that are in our intestine. You know, like the, the, the earliest evidence of bacteria on Earth is from Australia, where they found a rock outcropping that's 3.7 billion years old, and they, they could see the fossilized skeletons of bacteria there. So bacteria have been around for a long time, and every time I, as a physician, give antibiotics, I'm disrupting this beautiful coevolution that's happened over such a long period of time. And that's the challenge, and it's also the, the reason for the problem. Um, as, as humans, we actually are able to, to see the bacteria that are in our intestine. We have receptors, things called toll-like receptors, which can actually detect bacterial products. We have other cells in the lining of our intestine that actually taste bacterial products. And all of these sensors tell our immune system how to maintain what's called homeostasis, or just sort of like keeping things at an even keel in the intestine. Once we give antibiotics to save someone's life from a pneumonia, for example, 
we've destroyed those bacteria that our immune system is seeing and tasting, and those signals to do things like bring eosinophils to the gut are lost. And so that's the challenge, and and the the solution ultimately is going to be identify what are the specific bacteria that our immune system is seeing and tasting that bring the eosinophils there. And then we can make a probiotic that could be a, given probably to everyone that's taking antibiotics to prevent this infection. This year, you were named chairman of the World Health Organization Polio Research Committee. What is happening worldwide for polio? So with worldwide with polio, it's a, it's a very good news story. Uh, one of the three strains of polio has been eradicated from the world, and the second of the three strains has probably been eradicated. We have to wait a couple years to know that for sure. And so we're really only down to one strain of polio that still needs to be eradicated, and that's only in three countries right now. So it's in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria. And even in those three countries, there's only a handful of paralytic polio cases in the last year, under 50 cases. It's at this like key point, though, where you can't stop. Now is the time to really push immunizations, push for active surveillance, improve the uh, vaccines so that we can er- eradicate the very last few cases of polio. Do you forecast that? Yes, I think we're very very close, um, and, and not due to anything I've done, but from, from people who have been working on this for 20, 40 years now. You know, early on, people thought this would not be possible because most people with polio are asymptomatic. They don't have paralysis. They don't even know that they're infected. And so how do you eradicate something that you don't even know is there? And the answer was by, by very intensive vaccination and giving everyone multiple doses of the polio vaccine. And people still didn't believe it was possible until success. And so now that one strain for sure has been eradicated, a second probably has. And so I think that everyone accepts that it's possible. And with maintaining the commitment of of organizations like the World Health Organization and the Gates Foundation, this is possible, doable, and will happen within within a decade at the most. It's such exciting news at a time when there's so much bad news out there. Well, it's, it's, it's great to think that, that, that you won't have children that are paralyzed from this, this infectious disease. William Petrie is the Wade Hampton Frost Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia Medical School. He's also Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health at UVA. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. How often have we heard about new discoveries of a gene behind a particular trait or a troubling disease? Often, that science depends on massive databases of thousands of twins. Judy Silberg is the scientific director of the Mid-Atlantic Twin Registry, which they call MATTER for short. It's a database of 50,000 twin pairs, at Virginia Commonwealth University that's being used to uncover new connections between our genes, our health, and the environment. Twins offer information that no other group provides because of their natural experiment of genetic overlap. So they're unique. No one else could provide that information about genetic effect, except if you're looking for the genes, perhaps. Then you could use individuals. How fascinated were you already with the whole notion of twins? People think I'm in the business because my mother was a twin. She was an identical twin and she had her identical co-twin. But it was really after the fact, after my research, that I became interested in the resemblance between my mother and her twin and actually me and my cousin. For example, my mother, I would say she was high on the neuroticism scale and her co-twin, her identical twin, was high on the neuroticism scale. Their children share 50% of their genes. You know, so I do with my mother, and my cousin shares 50% of her genes with her mother. But my mother is genetically identical to her mother, so it's like the same person. So m- me and my cousin are much more highly related genetically than normal cousins. 
And so if something's genetic, you would see it in the resemblance between cousins. We call them half-sibs. They're not just cousins. They're more similar than cousins. Did you have a particular interest in twin studies? At the time, I was interested in uh, women's reproductive functioning. And it was hard to do that kind of work. But it turned out that one of the investigators in Australia had a very large twin registry, and he had data on women's reproductive functioning, like premenstrual syndrome, dysmenorrhea, and that really shifted my attention. What sort of thing could a twin study reveal about women's reproductive health? Well, years ago, the bias was um, the problems that women might have would be environmental or psychological. And this was, I think, a shift in looking at genetic influences on premenstrual syndrome and dysmenorrhea. So it, it was a paradigm shift. How did it help us understand that through genetics, women were coping with something that was very real and they're not crazy? What you do is you look at the resemblance between identical twins who share all their genes in common to non-identical or fraternal twins who share 50% of their genes If, for example, you're finding greater resemblance in perimenstrual or PMS in the identical twins as compared to the fraternal twins, indicating genetic influence. So I think it's an important message for doctors when they're seeing women in clinics that instead of downplaying what's going on with them that can be attributed to neuroticism or anxiety or depression, um, they will look at them differently, I think, and look at family history um, and just acknowledge that it's a real syndrome. What other aspects of human behavior and proclivity have been really illuminated through twin studies? I think this study is astonishing. It was a meta-analysis, which is just an aggregation of all the twin studies that have been done in the last 20 years. So they were looking at 1,500 traits, human traits, on 14 million twins. And the astonishing thing was how consistent it was across traits that on average, the heritability of things like you know, medical disorders, psychiatric disorders, height, weight, IQ, was an average of 50% heritability. And the remainder was due to the environment. But across all these studies across the world, it was very similar. There was only one difference. I don't know if people would be interested in this, but I, I thought it was interesting. When you look at antisocial behavior in kids, like the kids who are in high school, That's when the kids start acting out, conduct disorder. It's one of the few traits that has an influence of the family environment. Or it can reflect the peers. So I think it's important for parents to have that in mind, that it's genetic maybe, but really it's the social environment is is contributing to children acting out. What about, are we having twins born that are both heterosexual, twins born who are both not? I think the, the jury's out on sexuality and genetics. Really? I think so, yes. I would have thought it would have been conclusive. I don't think so. <laughs> and the implications are so big that I think they really have to study and replicate findings. I mean, that's really important in science, replicability. I mean, you could come out with an interesting finding, but someone else needs to replicate it before you can draw conclusions. And like I said, there's big implications, profound implications about that. So I think we have to be very careful. Worldwide, what are some of the biggest studies and questions now that researchers are trying to answer through twin studies? Now that we've demonstrated there's a genetic influence on most traits, they're trying to find the genes. And it's not that easy. So they're looking at things like schizophrenia, depression, ADHD, autism. There's not one gene that influences those things. That's one difficulty, one challenge. There's many, many, many genes And you need tens of thousands of people. Right. It's going to be the way it has been for cancer treatment. It's a cocktail. It's going to be the complex cocktail of genes Mm -hmm. that influences a given trait. Yes, I think so. And with things like schizophrenia, autism, uh, ADHD, the environment is not that important. So it's a little easier to study. You're not getting the complexity of genes and environment, you know, interacting. So they're looking at highly genetic traits. And they're, they're starting to look at hundreds of thousands of people to really resolve uh, when, you've, when you get a hit. Is it really a hit or is it, you know, not a hit? <laughs> so they need that many people. 
What about the subject of bullying? Evidently, twin studies have been used in looking into that. That's a very interesting topic that I've been uh, doing a lot of work on. It's so important. It starts like this. We know there's an effect of bullying on psychiatric emotional disturbance. And the interesting thing is it goes into young adulthood. And many, many studies have found that across the world, the twin studies who have looked at it, um, that the effects are not just in childhood or adolescence, but into 18 to 25-year-olds where you're looking at depression, suicidality. So that's the first thing to demonstrate that there truly is an effect. Now, the effect could be causal or it can be attributed to other factors. So, for example, if the child has a genetic liability to being bullied and a genetic liability to being suicidal, that may account for the association. There's a design that's very powerful. It's called the discorded MZ twin design. And you're looking at identical twins. One has been bullied and the other has not been bullied. If you find a higher rate, for example, of social anxiety in the twin that's been bullied versus their co-twin who has not been bullied, you can draw conclusions that it's causal. It cannot be related to genetic liability that the twins share. It's an environmental effect. And there are different implications for treatment if it's causal. You want to get rid of the bullying. But also if it's non-causal. There may be predisposing genetic factors that make a child more susceptible, and those need to be addressed if you're doing any kind of intervention. The next step is what we call gene expression. And we've talked about the influence of the genes on the environment. This is the environmental influence on the genes. And the discordant MZ twin design is very powerful in showing what's a true environmental effect and what is that effect on gene expression. Now people acknowledge not just genes, it's the expression of the genes, that they turned on and turned off, um, and it may be related to environmental trauma. So how do you explain being bullied or traumatized and being depressed? Like, what's the link? How does that work? Well, it may be explained by these gene expression differences, and that's what people are really starting to look at. What about the area of giftedness? Are many people looking into that when it comes to the twin study database? The closest thing is IQ. What you see consistently is an identical twin correlation of like 0.9. The highest is one. Very high, 0.8, 0.9. And a non-identical twin correlation of half that, indicating pure genes. That's been replicated many times. Also, when you look at identical twins raised apart, you see a very strong association between IQ in those twins. And similarly, with consistently, if you look at children that have been adopted, just singletons that have been adopted, they are much more similar in terms of their IQ with their biological mother than with their adoptive mother. So it all points to just a highly genetic effect on intellectual functioning. People think that genes are static. That's one of the things we're finding as well. They're not static through development. So just because you have the gene doesn't mean it's expressed throughout your life. And one important example of that is depression in girls at adolescence. What it looks like is that pre-pubertal, the girls look like the boys in terms of their rates. But at puberty, the depression in the girls really takes off. And when we look at the twin correlations, pre-pubertal and after puberty for the girls and the boys, the heritability of depression really goes up for the girls. So that's, it's indicating that there's a turning on of the genes at certain phases of development it's called innovation. There's also attenuation where they, they're minimized. But the important point is that through development, you see a differential expression of genes. And they account for some very important phenomenon. Um, like, for example, children are raised in their families till about 18. And the effect of the family, you know, it, it's there, the family environment. But when you start to study through development, those twins who go into college, young adulthood, you start seeing the effect of the genes. And we see that for things like um, social attitudes. So when they're children or adolescents, they reflect the attitudes of their parents. But when they go out into the world, then you start seeing genetic influences on things like attitudes, really religiosity, um, psychopathology. So it changes depending where you are in development. Which interests you more? genetics themselves or 
the environment that we're raised in? I would say I'm interested more in the environment, but I'm interested in genes to the extent that they interact with the environment. Heritability is interesting, but I'm more interested in mechanisms. So you could have different mechanisms, like some people are more genetically sensitive to the environment, um, genes referencing what happens to them, what their parents do to them. Those kind of mechanisms that explain more of why children have problems, adults have problems, than pure genes. Well, Judy Silberg, thank you for talking with me about the twin database today and with good reason. You're very welcome. Judy Silberg is the scientific director at the Mid-Atlantic Twin Registry at Virginia Commonwealth University. Coming up next, giving diabetes sufferers peace of mind. If you have type 1 diabetes, managing the disease is a constant headache. And deciding how much insulin is needed to balance out high blood sugar can involve a lot of guesswork. But now researchers are perfecting a new artificial pancreas, which automates those difficult calculations and allows people to live with much less worry. Boris Kovachev and Sue Brown are part of a team at the University of Virginia behind this new technology. I think the... the way that the artificial pancreas works and what it's actually trying to do is to help that individual manage their blood sugar. And normally someone who has type 1 diabetes where you require insulin, to deliver the insulin they have something called an insulin pump. And those are devices that deliver the insulin to someone under their skin. We have other devices that are what we call sensors, and they detect what someone's blood sugar is doing. And those two devices don't necessarily talk to one another to take action. And so what an artificial pancreas does is help figure out how much insulin do I need right now? How can I use the information that I have available to predict what's going to happen? At UVA, what we're focusing on is on the brain between the sensor and the pump. That brain is a pretty complex mathematical algorithm that we have developed at UVA here. So that's the critical piece that she's talking about, the brain between existing sensor and existing pump. So, Sue, if you have this sensor, this device, this replaces you having to think about it. It will happen automatically that you'll, your blood sugar level will be monitored throughout the day and night in tiny, exactly appropriate doses pumped into you? We have taken a real big fear out of the treatment of diabetes, and that is the fear of a low blood sugar. So people who require insulin constantly worry about whether or not they may take too much and develop a low blood sugar. And a low blood sugar can be devastating in some situations. And so what these devices are particularly good at doing is trying to avoid those real low blood sugars, particularly while you're sleeping. They haven't developed yet where the person who is trying to use one of these artificial pancreas, they still have to consider what's happening to them. And in particular, everybody who has type 1 diabetes has to think about their meals and how much they're going to eat. How much does this transform the lives of people with diabetes? How, how helpful is it? Well, one thing that really gets us up every day and working really hard on this is the impact it makes on people's lives. And I can't tell you the number of times that we finish a study, they've been able to have access to the artificial pancreas, and now it's time to give it back because the study is over. And at that moment, parents, kids, adults are oftentimes in tears because it made such a difference to them. And they just want to figure out how can I get this? How can I have this in my, in my future? We do a variety of clinical trials studying the artificial pancreas in camps and other settings. And to have parents come the next day and say, for the first time, I slept all night because I wasn't worried about my child. And the, that's just powerful in their lives. And that gets back to why these 
systems, the automated systems, can really help someone decrease what they're really fearful of. And a lot of times that's developing a low blood sugar in the middle of the night when they're asleep. And do people have to set alarms to wake up and inject themselves, or can they otherwise usually just sleep through the night? I think if you ask a parent of a child who has type 1, they pretty much don't sleep night after night because they're worried about getting up, checking the blood sugar, seeing where it's going, even though there may be some alarms set. And these automated systems really help take that burden off so they don't have to worry as much because it's going to take care of their child. How do children use them when they're so complex? It'd be hard for a child just to get a phone that's in sleep mode back on. Well, the system is largely automated. There is, of course, communication with the user. And from the studies that we have done, children down to the age of six had no problems talking with that phone or communicating with that phone. Is the device to the point where we can count on the dosage being accurate and we can count on the reading of when that dose is needed being accurate? You don't have to second-guess it. Uh, well, this is why we're running long-term large-scale studies. So there are some of these components of automatic insulin delivery, but not the whole package. It's commercially available yet? This is incremental progress as it goes. The sensors out there, insulin pumps out there. Various elements of a full closed-loop system are already out there. For example, there are systems that shut down insulin to prevent low blood sugar levels. That's out there. What I think the challenge is with these systems and getting them in the hands of people are, are many different things. And one is, of course, affording them. And we've struggled with different companies, such as Medicare, who has been debating about whether to support the use of some of these devices. We've made some headway, and they've made some really in my opinion, good decisions to allow um, bigger segments of the population in the U.S. to have access to these these devices. But that's one of the other challenges that will will continue to be out there as more and more progress is made to improve the lives of people with diabetes. In addition to the promise that's shown by the artificial pancreas, what are some of the other approaches that researchers are taking for cures for diabetes? I understand there is a cell regeneration effort underway. Yes, yeah, so there are several approaches that are being tried by various groups, including at the University of Virginia. Beta cell regeneration is one of those. The beta cell, to start with, is the cell that produces insulin in the pancreas, and therefore when it's not functional, like in type 1 diabetes, or with diminished functionality, as in type 2 diabetes, replacement may be in order. And replacement includes uh, transplantation of islets. For example, islet is the little uh, organoid in, in, the, in the pancreas that contains several cells, including beta cells. So that is being transplanted. That's a way to replace beta cell function. Um, there is regeneration through immunosuppression because the beta cell is killed by a person's own immune system. Um, there are other replacement strategies such as um, beta cell encapsulation. Uh, when these cells are put into a capsule, that is then implanted in a person. So there are several approaches out there based on biotechnology or surgery or other methods that are being tried. We hope that there will be great strides in that area, and, and there's a lot of work trying to, to focus on that. You are being cautious. Boris, do you feel the same way? Or do you think, hey, we could get to a biological cure for this through perhaps one of those three methods you were describing? It is entirely possible, but it's not imminent to the best of our knowledge. Oh, we're still early days. Yeah, this is still early days. Are there ailments that this device, the artificial pancreas, might be useful for that are not just diabetes? To address this question, we have to realize that the artificial pancreas is not necessarily a single function device. It's a platform for technology development. In the past 10 years, while we were developing this particular system to automate insulin delivery in diabetes, a number of other technologies have been developed in parallel. For example, we know now how to precisely quantify the action of the human metabolic system. 
how to simulate it, how to model it, and how to control it. And this creates a whole toolbox of various technologies that are not necessarily intended for automated insulin delivery, but for other things, including control of exercise, weight loss, and other applications that are upcoming as an offshoot of artificial pancreas development. So you can view it as basically the Apollo program that wanted to go to the moon and created various things in the process, including Velcro. <laughs> That's true. Did you really say that those magic words that conceivably down the road, this may have applicability to people who want to, who need help with weight loss? Well, quantifying the metabolic balance of these people is a first step to helping them, giving them advice or um, providing them with adequate calibration of their energy metabolism. So, yes, we can envision applications like that which have not been developed just yet. Boris Kovachev is director of the Center for Diabetes Technology at the University of Virginia. And Sue Brown is an associate professor of research in internal medicine in the UVA health system. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. SmithfieldFoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Georgiana Reed and Emily Hayes. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.